You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. I could, I could not imagine any group that I've ever been a part of being so inclusive that they would actually consider bringing a Nazi on board to, uh, uh, to be part of the conversation. Because again, that goes back to what I said earlier, is that there are some folks that will change, that can change, that want to change, and there are folks who will never change. We felt that it was important not to be silent. Silence is interpreted as acceptance. So, do we want to catch this person? You know, what's, what's our goal? Mm. And I said, I think the goal is to let them know we're watching. You just heard voices from No Not Ever, a multimedia installation that documents rural and suburban activists who organized against white nationalists in the Northwest during the 1980s. This was the height of the Northwest Territorial Imperative, a movement among white separatists and the Aryan nation to relocate and populate the Northwest. No Not Ever documents the creative strategies and everyday resistance of people who probably never thought they'd have to fight neo-Nazis. We spoke with the collaborative, If You Don't, They Will, about the genesis of the project and using cultural production as a tool against white nationalism. So we are If You Don't, They Will, and we are a Seattle-based cultural organizing collaboration that provides communities, concrete and creative tools to counter white nationalism through a cultural lens. And um, I got started doing this work about 20 years ago when I was a student, I was an undergrad, and um, I was involved in like feminist and anti-racist organizing, but um, two students of color were jumped by neo-Nazi skinheads like a block away from our campus. And there was this community meeting that came together um, and I went to it, uh, and there was two very sort of divided responses about how to respond that were pivotal for me. Um, the first one was really similar to some of the problematic responses we're hearing right now, where like folks were like, don't give them attention, that's what they want. Um, it's just one extreme individual, just one Yahoo, they're not smart, um, or ignore them and they will go away. Um, And then the other side I was exposed to, which forever changed my life, and I'm very grateful for, was a framework to understand white white nationalist violence as um, part of a larger social movement that is organized, intentional, strategic, and working, you know, in all ways, politically, economically, and culturally, to take over school boards, to um, organize in bars, to perform in malls, um to run for local electoral offices and you know they too are having meetings like we are right now talking about organizing strategies they're activists and so for me that was like whoa a big light bulb moment where i i had not been taught to or taught myself to think of them as activists um and and for me that meant that if we understand them as a social movement we have to organize differently So I got involved, luckily I got involved with an organization called Northwest Coalition for Human Dignity. And Northwest Coalition was a product of two longtime uh, organizations here in the Northwest. Coalition for Human Dignity, which started in the late 80s in Portland, Oregon, when um, an Ethiopian student named Mologaida Sarah was murdered by neo-Nazi skinheads 
Um, and, and then Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment, which started in the late 80s also, when a Catholic priest named Bill Wasmith was speaking out against the Aryan nations, um, and his house was, he was bombed. There was a sense of like, who are these people and how is this getting networked? And so they really figured out um, and cultivated research strategies. In response, folks were like outraged um, and they developed a, a network of grassroots and suburban human rights task forces is what they were called in the six Northwest states who all differently were countering white nationalism um, in the 80s and 90s. And those are the people like that we went back and visited. And um, during that time, the white power music scene started to explode. And like a lot of the old school suit and tie white nationalist dudes were buying record labels um, and really focusing on how music and art were powerful ways to recruit and build like white nationalist identities and sentiments. And so I was like really interested in that and how to counter it. And luckily, got introduced to Home Alive here, so I'm gonna pass it off. Uh, yeah, we met, um, at the time I was working for an organization that I helped found called Home Alive, and we organized self-defense and boundary setting classes that were really rooted in an understanding of anti-oppression. And we started after a friend of ours, fellow singer in the Seattle music scene, um, was brutally raped and murdered. And so we started organizing um, free self-defense classes, like to just sort of take care of us and our friends and our community. And it began to evolve into uh, a curriculum. And we were organizing through the arts and music community because that's what we knew how to do, right? So we were doing like art shows, music shows, like a week-long awareness week, these sorts of things, putting like bands, we're going on tour, we put out an um, album on Sony Records called The Art of Self-Defense. So we were working with a lot of musicians um, at the time uh, that Seattle was kind of under this like microscope was like when grunge was blowing up and so there was a lot of international national attention on the music scene in Seattle and I saw this blurb on white power music at like the workshop that the Northwest Coalition for Human Dignity was putting on in I think it was Eugene around white power music and I was like what what is this and so I started asking around right like all the people like at Sony and people that were doing tours and all these bands and nobody had heard of this we're like, we have a long history of fighting skinheads, like it shows, right? I mean, you know, on the front lines and still nobody's ever heard of like, we know bands, right? Like, you know, they're uh, skinheads and bands, but like this whole idea of like white power music being this thing, uh, we were a little taken aback. So I went to this workshop and uh, ended up finding out that not only were was white power music this thing, but like Kate said, uh, old school Nazis and white nationalists were buying, seeing the power of music and culture organizing. And so they um, were buying small little like base room, you know, basement um, record labels and using that as a way to funnel, like uh, raise, it was a multi-million dollar enterprise, which shocked me. Uh, that was, and the money was getting funneled into electoral organizing, putting these bands on tours and using the, the music shows as an organizing site. And I was like, that's what we're doing, but we're not making like millions of dollars. Like, so I was kind of pissed. Um, brought it back to Home Alive and was like, we need to start, one, we need to recognize what we're doing as cultural organizing and kind of own it more. I think we've been doing it, right? But just really seeing like, this is an effective way to feel part of a social movement and to really see uh, white nationalism as a social movement. 
uh, it was informed by the idea that people were being moved and we needed to get to them first and move them. But also if they were at a point where they had already been moved and were really, um, they were showing up in our scenes trying to organize us. Whereas before, I don't think that we recognized that. Like, oh, I'm trying to organize you and you're trying to organize me and you're never going to make me a Nazi. And so and there's a point at which like, I'm never going to make you an anti-racist, right? So I think that was a new, like, oh, here's a different way of cutting that boundary while also grabbing onto people like, you're movable. Like you are, you are getting you know, mobilized around a feeling of like community and you haven't quite yet been indoctrinated to the point where like, we just have to say like, get out. So yeah, I mean, I think that that, and that space was really messy and contested in a lot of different ways. That also sort of speaks to like, there's like three principles in this work, disrupt, diffuse, and compete. And compete is part of that, that we need to be in spaces that are up for grabs, making clear no not evers to white nationalism, because it's often really not clear, um, that we need to be providing alternatives, right? That we need to be com competing for the same public spaces, the same private spaces, the same constituents that they're going after too. Um, and not just in boring, um, paternalistic, I'm going to lecture you ways, um, which is why like cultural organizing is so central and so key to this work, that it needs to be a cultural threat that's competing too. We have been talking uh, a lot about, um, uh, you know, thinking about how to represent, uh, how to represent this social, the social movement to uh, resist white nationalism in the Pacific Northwest and how um, the mess of that movement and the kind of the complexity of um, how it's, it's a broad coalition that doesn't necessarily agree on, <laughs> I think the joke that you all used to bring up is uh, anything but uh, uh, saying no to white nationalism. Um, and how, how to depict that in a way that doesn't sort of um, outside of a kind of linear documentary narrative. Um, um, my interest in getting involved in it was thinking, you know, both about um, uh, supporting this movement to capture this and relay it to audiences and actually find ways for viewers to become, um, uh, have to work a bit to get into, you know, to, to join a movement in order to participate in uh, an art exhibition uh, rather than just passively kind of understanding, you know, getting a history, getting something that's consumable that they can kind of like file in their understandings of uh, things. But um, it takes some work to do any part of this. I think so, like, the project's trying to do many things. Um, one is like, look, white nationalism is a social movement. Let's see it that way. But more importantly is that we're a social movement too. Like, and how do we capture the, the, the social movement to say no, not ever to white nationalism in a way that doesn't make heroes, that doesn't romanticize, and that interrupts a progress narrative, right? Um, so problematic. And, and also so, sort of showcases like everyday anti-fascism, right? Like these folks, they're in their living rooms, they're with their pets. Um, and part of that is like, again, not to romanticize, but because this is just the work they do. They don't romanticize themselves. In fact, a lot of them are like, why are you interviewing us? <laughs> like, you should talk to so-and-so. We're like, no, that's absolutely right. Um, but that like, one of the senses we're trying to cultivate inside the show is that like, anybody can join. <laughs> Right? Like, there's so many different access points for you to join the movement to say no to white nationalism, and there's so many ways to say no. And that we actually need this diversity of no's. Like, that's what it means to be in a social movement. And um, 
And because like we we knew the people that we were interviewing, um, not like super well, but they mentored us. Like they're the generation that sort of mentored us in, in our, and helped cultivate our political sensibilities. And you know, we don't all agree about everything either. We have different strategies and we use different discourses and aesthetics and all that too. But I think our part of our like goal is to just build this bridge and like help transmit these histories in a way to support organizing today so that maybe we can have a different future. One of the things when we were doing uh, workshops, uh, if you know if they will, and um, coming from, I think, a lot of the sensibility of Home Alive really was having people enter this in a way that is about an embodied sense of feeling, right? It's not an intellectual sort of like, I know that um, a lot of times people get inundated with like numbers and research and here's like 50 million different facts about white nationalism and it, oh, um, and it can feel like you have to know all this, you have to be this expert before you can do anything and people get sort of frozen and outside their bodies and just in their brains. And it's finding a way to have people feel uh, like they can step in and say no, right? And have that and like in really like everyday sort of ways and also disrupting a lot of the fear, right? I think that um, one of the things when I began um, working with the coalition and going and supporting these worlds of urban organizers was people's homes were getting bombed. People were like having, you know, white nationalists drive past their house with like rifles, you know, and they're talking about it and they're figuring out how to counter it and show up and they're like, and then they go to the continue meeting and there they are. And I mean, they're not, you know, making light of this in any way, but they're all, like, there was not this sense of fear. And, uh, and in doing, like, working at Home Alive, there was so much of our, uh, the, just the sensibility was like, yes, we're going to talk about self-defense, we're going to talk about violence, we're going to talk about domestic violence, we're going to talk about our friends getting raped and murdered and killed, and it's uh, dark. And we're going to do that from a place that says, like, what do we want to do to build the kinds of world we want to live in? And how do we want to do that from a place of, um, of resiliency and love and sort of like fierceness, but also uh, fun, you know. And so I think that um, I saw that in all these organizers. I was like, oh, there's even this is happening in these ways that kind of gets lost when what gets talked about is the number of white nationalist groups or the number of this. And so we really wanted to go back and capture that in the stories, right? It was really just this um, this quality of resistance. That was fierce and um, and embodied a lot to be terrified of, but was also just sort of this everyday kitchen table conversation about how you're going to say no to white nationalists. Yeah, and our hope is that people come into the space and feel like they're entering into a conversation. You know, we really feel like urban activists have so much to learn from rural activists, mm -hmm. and there's just there's just a lot of like really bad. I know we we hear a lot of urban groups saying, yeah, we're going to go into rural spaces and teach them how to do stuff, instead of thinking, of course they're already doing stuff and they have something to teach us. And so centering their work in this um, in this archive project has been like the forefront of one of our, like the spirit of this work. They probably wouldn't identify as anti-fascist. That language would never work. They have often used the language of human rights. And I think sometimes like, I think what it means to do human rights work in these spaces is really different than what we would think here in Seattle or like what some academic readings have put out, critiques of human rights discourses. It means something really different in, in, in the different contexts. If you place that on these activists, you're going to miss how radical they are. That some of the activists that we interviewed, right, they would never call themselves anti-fa. 
they embody it. Mm-hmm. Like what they are doing is absolutely that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think partly they're getting missed. I, I, I wish like in a perfect world, <laughs> the, the attention that white nationalism is getting right now um, seems like a great opportunity to go and learn from the activists that we interviewed. And I would love to see them being interviewed. And I would love, they, you know, maybe I'm missing that because of my limited news feed, but um, they have so much, so much to offer and teach us. And I would just, I, I would love to see that centered more. I haven't seen it at all. No, not ever. And if you don't, they will. We'll be at the Interference Archive in early 2018. You can visit our show notes to find out more about the project and the anti-fascist, anti-racist workshops coming in the spring. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you've heard today, consider making a donation to keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.